This episode of the Get Fast podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. You are joined as always by your host, former Australian Ironman champion, Jared Donnelly, and I am Jordan Donnelly. Every race brings with it a bunch of great learnings and lessons. Whether you, you performed well or you performed not so well, uh, there's always something to learn. And after the Geelong 70.3 last week, we've decided to break down seven crucial lessons we learnt from the race. But before that, our new segment, what are you grateful for? We'll start with you, Dad. What are you grateful for? Uh, it's a really easy one, George. And... Um a lot of you would have already listened to one of our very first podcasts, um, probably in the first five, I think we ever did a, f- a few years ago now. It was uh, one of the athletes that we coach, uh, Julian Painter. And for those who don't know who Julian is, he was a 5,000 metre Olympian at Atlanta Olympics in 1996. So he's an outstanding runner and he's changed sports now that he's in his 50s, um, to writing. And um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to have known Julian Painter. Um, He epitomises everything about being a professional. And even as a 50-year-old, he still does the same things that he did to get him to the top of his sport at the Olympics. And let's face it, the Olympics is the pinnacle of every um, sportsman's dream either the World Championships or the Olympics. There's no bigger event. And watching the way he prepares, the way he plans, the way he performs, he does everything. All, he ticks all the boxes. Uh, I've never come across an athlete like it, and it's no wonder that he was an Olympian. Um, but he still exemplifies those traits now as, a, as an everyday uh, Masters rider. And, and it's been a privilege to, to be able to coach him um, he just won three national titles in the time trial, team's time trial and road race. Um, you know, he, he's, he's just, sh- he's a leader. He sets the, the, the benchmark for others to follow and we can learn lots from these people and, uh, and it's, I'm so grateful to know him. And as with, uh, most, uh, times when you prepare for an event and go to the event and finish it, it's always good to, uh, reflect and, I had the opportunity to go out for dinner with Julian and his partner and um, my wife, Andy, and your mum um, last night. And Julian actually presented me with um, uh, a picture frame that had a picture of him um, running in the 5,000 metre at, Atlant- at the Atlanta Olympics and with his number pinned underneath with a, me- with a message of gratefulness on the back. And um, it it really teared me up. It was, and it's doing it now, <laughs> because it it just it was one of those things that you know these the the number is special to him because you only get a front number and a back number, and he's put that in a in a beautiful presentation and given it to me uh, for his uh, gratitude for me being his coach, and that it meant a lot to me, and I was. Yeah, I was really emotionally grateful for that whole journey, and last night was was fantastic. Um, um, to yeah, to be a to be part of of his journey, and um, that's the reward as a coach that I look forward to with every athlete I coach. Where you know, and I always say I treat everybody like my own children, and 
it is so rewarding to see people not just succeed, that's, that's really rewarding, but the process and the journey that they've been on with you. Um, and, you and the reflection on going back to, you know, eight months worth of really difficult training sessions and, and that's what makes it worthwhile. So it's a long-winded gratefulness but um, one that I think really sets a, a standard it's an amazing gratitude. I'm looking at the frame right now and it is pretty special. And yeah, to see the number that he wore at the Olympics is uh, pretty phenomenal. And so if come out with a bang with the gratitude, they don't always have to be that big, but it is definitely something worthy of being grateful for. Um, my one's a little bit simpler. Um, I am just grateful for the last bit of warm weather that is sticking around. Um, it's nothing like an Olympic athlete, but um you know, it hasn't been the best summer weather-wise for Melbournians. It hasn't been extremely warm. Um, so at the moment, just soaking up every good day possible. And you caught me yesterday and just said I had to go outside and go for a ride because it was such a good day. So, um, yeah, that's my gratitude is just to be grateful for the warm weather. Awesome. To our normal segment, what's caught your attention? Uh, what's been catching your attention lately? Well, definitely I watched a documentary um, a couple of weeks ago. And it was on uh, Dustin Martin. And I must say, uh, for those of you who are not football supporters, and we were f- really big football supporters when our team was winning, <laughs> but we're not so good now when our yeah. team's not so good. Yeah. Um, so I'm not a real fan of Richmond or <laughs> Dustin Martin, yeah. but I am a fan of him now. Um, watching that documentary, it'd be worthwhile. Uh, uh, Nick Rewald interviewed him. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, what I heard from Dustin Martin was not what I picture him as. And um, I said to you, uh, and I think I said to your brother, there's something different about Richmond. There's something different about um, the way Dustin Martin is now as a human being. When he was younger, of course he was young and reasonably immature, like all young footballers are, and they're caught up in the team environment and the the boys' club sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know... Looking from afar, you, you think, oh, you know, good footballer, but what else? Um, but listening to that interview, there was a lot else to be uh, likeable. Um, he has been given a lot of help from from other people who are really good influences um, uh, in terms of the mind, mindset. And it's a really underrated area that we feel is it deserves more attention And and I just think – what they're doing at Richmond Football Club is a great lesson, a great uh, leader of of how to get people on the same page and be process-driven rather than results-driven. And and the motivation comes from uh, ticking the boxes each day and it, re- it reflects in triathlon or cycling or running. You know, it doesn't matter what sport. Um, you need to be process-driven and, and enjoy that process so that uh, when you get the right outcome, you look back and go, oh, I made it. It's almost like a shock when you get to the mm. result. And what 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 was their result? Three premierships in four years, um, and they're all on board. They're all on the same page. They're yep. all planning together. They're all performing together. They're all preparing together. It's no different to what you would be doing as a a triathlete aiming for the your next event, your next half Ironman or Ironman, a cyclist going for the you know the big A race. Yep. You've just got to have this part of your preparation equally as important as the physical side of your preparation. You've got to understand that it is a process. There are going to be highs and lows along that journey 
And the person who can remain uh, vigilant and consistent is going to get the best outcome. So process-driven for the outcome. And you'd think that in a game like AFL football, being process-driven is going to be the least effective because there's just so many factors. There's, there's 22 players on a team. You're playing 18 other teams in the comp. It's, it's a team competition. It's not you versus the event. And really, 17 teams are losers if throughout the year. Only one team is a winner, and that's the team that wins the grand final. And so it's so much about the result. And so how can you know process-driven um, be so good in such a team environment and the fact that it, it works for them, they're so process-driven that the result takes care of itself and they, and they win three premierships in four years. And I hate, like you said, um, giving Richmond any props. But, <laughs> but the fact is that's what they've done. And... Um, yeah, that, that process-driven is, is seems to be the, the key to it. And the fact is that if they can do that, then in an individual sport like triathlon or cycling time trial or even in cycling races, you can be process-driven as well and have more chance of a successful result. You have to be on board with the plan, don't you? Everybody has to be on board in a team environment. And if a few aren't, they either get left behind or get discarded. Um, you can't carry passengers in a team event. Mm. As an individual sport, you have to be committed, but you also have to have your family members on board. So it's similar. Mm. You know, everybody has to be on the same page. If you've got someone working against you who's jealous that you're training so much or um, or you're not giving them enough attention or your work's suffering, it won't work. It, it, it has to be all together for the, for, the, for the process to get to the end result. That's a good one. What's caught my attention is I've been reading up uh, on a few studies recently about you know, performance, um, legal performance enhancers, things that can help your performance and looking at the value of placebos versus the uh, detriment of superstitions. So looking a lot of thing, at a lot of uh, studies that show um, when taken as a double-blind control test um, – certain supplements or um, performance enhancers, again, this, these are all legal studies, um, had no benefit. But uh, outside of the tests, anecdotally, had hundreds of anecdotes of people swearing that they helped their performance. You know? And so if it helps you, if you think it helps you and you're in a better mindset for it, then maybe it's worth doing. You know, there's lots of people that have little things that they do for their performance. Uh, they eat something or they... Um, have a certain carb drink or have certain gels or certain supplements that they believe is helping their performance. And uh, I think there is huge value in that and it's quite underrated, even if it actually doesn't scientifically um, or the science doesn't actually prove it. If you think it's helping your mindset, then you might perform better because of it. But there is a fine line there between when you start doing things as a superstition and it becomes detrimental to performance because you don't think you can perform well without them, you know, and suddenly mm-hmm. if you don't have that supplement available or then you're already telling yourself you're not going to perform as well um, without that thing when it didn't even work in the first place. Interesting so. conundrum, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, And it's a really good point. I, you know, looking back on things that I definitely felt was no basis for doing this, but I knew that it got me in, in the zone. And so that's what I did. And, and I maintain that win, lose or draw, if, if you're playing a team sport, if there's an individual performing well or performing poorly, that was my, um, you know, my go-to um, method of preparing mm. a, or executing as well. Mm. So, so I think if you think that it's helping you, then 
you should continue to do it. One of the most interesting studies I looked at was that cold water therapy has actually a lot less evidence than um, everyone thought, you know, and to the point where it's actually, there's actually no much difference in, in terms of recovery. Yet I will, I'll, to the day I die, say that I feel so much better chucking my legs in cold water. And if that's as big a placebo as it is, then so be it. But I'll keep doing it because I feel a lot better for it. So yep. that was a clear example to me. Yep. And look, the horses uh, in the salt water, um, and obviously footballers go to the salt water. And if you went to cold water and it wasn't salty, is there a difference just going to a lake where there's no salt as compared to going to the ocean where it's full of salt? And, you know, there's conjecture about that and just the, is it the cold water or is it the salt mm. you know we don't actually know mm. but you know certainly dipping your legs in um makes them feel better f- yourself yeah. but there's no evidence that yeah. suggests that it's a good thing or not it's the same with uh compression boots mm. you know there is no evidence to say that that is right or wrong well I, the study i read was actually looking at that it was looking at um cold water and compression and there was more evidence for compression than cold water so that's why it was pretty interesting yeah well i do have the compression boots and i've looked at all the studies and it comes out 50 yeah. 50 um but i'm still wearing the compression boots yeah exactly yeah yeah so that's what caught, that's what's caught my attention because it, i think it's interesting to think about it you look at rafael nadal he has the most superstitions out of a tennis player he has to put his bottles in an exact spot uh, when he's before each point in between games. And I think that to him becomes a bit of a detriment because um, it can take away from his focus on the processes that matter because putting his drink ball the right way doesn't. And mm. you could argue that it does put him in the right frame of mind. but Puts him in the zone. Yeah, but it seems a little bit But he wouldn't walk. You were a ball kid, so you saw a lot of the superstitions from the tennis players and a lot of them wouldn't walk on the white lines yeah, to yeah. and from their seat. Yeah. But you walk all over, all over the white line in the rally. Well, the funniest one I saw was because there's two ball kids at each baseline and the players ask for balls to serve from whichever one, has, whichever one they're walking towards or something. And then players would have this ridiculous superstition where they'd only take it from one side, one ball kid. They'd pick a ball kid and they'd only take balls from them. And so the rest of the ball kids all had to get the balls to that one ball kid. And while it was a hassle for the ball kids... It was just ridiculous because they would get angry and agitated when the ball kids weren't up to scratch, you know, if they weren't getting the balls there fast enough. And then you're, you're letting your performance be affected by these six kids, these six 13 mm. or 14 year old kids on the court. Mm. Now, that is just an absolutely ridiculous superstition. There's 100% taking away from performance. And there were multiple players that did that. And I would just look at them and go, you're, you're, you're in a grand slam and you're getting agitated at these kids. And obviously- It's performance more, related. Yeah, they're more agitated themselves, but- yep. Yep. To be putting an external superstition, thinking I'm going to play better if I'm getting the balls from one side is a pure example of what we're talking about here. That's the detriment. The other example was if they just served an ace, they want that ball back. Yeah. <laughs> so they're not going to hit any other ball. Yeah. How many balls are on the quarter at a time? Six. So yeah. they'll just, I want that ball back. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, moving on to today's topic, seven lessons from a 70.3 race. So the first one we'll go through is that uh, we believe not enough people <laughs> have listened to our podcast by looking at um, <laughs> by looking and analysing Geelong. And we were actually lucky. We had a few people come up to us, which is um, happens at races where people say, I listen to your podcast. And one guy came up and said, oh, yeah, um, I don't have much experience, but I listen to every single one of your podcasts. And his time was phenomenal. He was he was not far off the kind of pro and elite category. Um, and he said, right, back to footy season now. So <laughs> we both loved that. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, definitely uh, – Clearly, um, our words have gone on deaf ears, um, or people did actually hear it. Um, but, but yeah, uh, like we've said in many of the podcasts, um, it seemed to me like ninety-five percent of the field don't have a plan, um, and that's that's kind of one of the things <laughs> that's 
pretty important. Yeah, I mean, one thing that we said in summary was that you could tell by watching through body language who was in control of the event and who was at the mercy of the event. And that's quite clear when you get into the end of the bike and the end of the run. You know, if you haven't um, performed to your numbers, to, to your plan, so to say, then you're going to be at the mercy of the event and you're going to be just getting through and suffering through. Whereas those in control will have, and it shows in that body language, they're in control right through to the very end of the run. Yeah, it was so obvious, wasn't it? Um, and we, we stood there for, you know, nearly three hours watching all of the runners and we were waiting for you know, our particular Trivello runners to come through and, um, and you, you could see because people run past you four or five times so you could see the changes mm. in their body language and and even their mindset um, um we had a couple of examples of things going wrong um and um i'll use one example i won't use any names but um one person's bike wouldn't change gears and that can be incredibly infuriating so stuck in the one gear the whole way for 90 k's that might be okay in a flat course, but this course had headwind and hills and and you're in the wrong gear going up a hill. It, you know, it's going to blow your legs to pieces. Um, so to his credit, um, he was very angry throughout the whole bike ride, but he got off and changed gear. You could change gears manually, but he had to get off <laughs> yeah. stop and push the button manually yeah. on the rear derailleur. Which is worth it in some sections. Yeah. Um, but anyway, come to the run, you know, has he got in a mechanical with the run? No, he hasn't. But he's still carrying the baggage from the mechanical, the mindset of woe is me, which is a fair enough reaction. This is crap. Um, but it's not affecting your run. You've got control of your run. You've got back in control of your event. So get your mind off what just happened and concentrate on executing the run as well as you can. So you get something positive out of it. And he did that beautifully. Um, he was still angry and he... Gave me the body language and fucking like, yeah, yeah. And I said, yeah, but you're running now, yeah. And bang, ran beautifully. Yeah, that's what we want to hear. And I mean, this this first point is by no means a criticism of, any, of anyone. We never ever criticize anyone that puts on a number and takes on the event. Uh, the point of these lessons is, what can you do to have a more enjoyable experience next time? Yeah, and you've done all this effort and spent all this time and paid all this money to do something you really love. Why not do it with an enjoyable aspect to it rather than being a painful experience? And even though it's painful, you've still signed up for the next event already (laughs) since Sunday. Um, So I just think uh, there's a better way to experience the event. And and that's sort of what we're trying to get across. Absolutely. Lesson number two, people are still not riding the bike how it should be ridden. And look – Normally, I would be an armchair judge in this, but I happened to be in the race on the bike and I was astounded at the way people were riding. It was it was a little bit disappointing, actually. Um, and um, even in our own little group, there were still poor executions of, um, of the bike leg. And it might sound critical, um, and it's easy for me because I've ridden 220 different time trials in triathlon um, and time trials, so mm-hmm. I'm, I should be across and and know what I'm doing. But you know, there are a lot of people in that event who have done fifteen or twenty half Ironmans, um, so they should actually be across it as well. Um, 
And to have so many people ride so hard so early uh, when I know what I'm doing and I know the numbers I'm riding at and the mm-hmm. speed I'm riding at and I'm thinking, boy, there's some really good cyclists in this event. I was, I was going, whoa, the standard's pretty damn good. I'm not really passing many people. And to put the scene right, the race had a tailwind generally all the way out to the first turnaround, which is you know roughly 25k out, um, and 25k back was really a headwind. Mm-hmm. So the hardest part of the course was on the way back, mm-hmm. and you're doing that twice. So you get the headwind twice on the way back, and there was a little, a, a bit of a rise on the way out. But the majority of the time, you were absolutely flying. There were people averaging 45 to 50 on the way out, and and smoking it. Um, and when we turned around, they all basically fell apart mm. into the headwind. Mm-hmm. And I started passing people with ease. Mm. And and I'm thinking, no, they're not good bike riders. They have just ruined their race mm. in the first 25K. They've ridden way too hard. And progressively, you know, they got slower and slower till literally some of them were riding, for example, one hour 30 on the way out. For the first half mm-hmm. and one hour 45 for the second half and, and i can tell you my second half was faster than my first half which is you know lucky it did do that not lucky that was my plan yep. but imagine if i'm sitting here saying i actually didn't do what i tell everybody to do yeah so so i really was disappointed in the way that i see people still executing and clearly are not listening to our podcast <laughs> yeah <laughs> Point number three, lesson number three, and this is one thing that stood out to me clearly, and that is your power range for the day. So what was your minimum and maximum power? And this is a bit of a unique one because you, you, you talk a lot about what is your average power that you're aiming for, what is the range that you want to ride between for most of the day. You know, you want to be sitting between 250 and 270 watts, but you don't often think about, well, what, was your, what were your max efforts for the day? And I think this is a really good point. You brought it up to me because – your personal range was, correct me if I'm wrong, 250 to 270? Exactly, yeah. Exactly, yep. yep. I think that's why I said that yep. as the first example. And your maximum one-minute effort was 295, so just outside that range. And mm. if, you know, if, if you were using power, you know that you're constantly up and down. That is a strength of yours that you train a lot is to just hold a power number and not – you can sit on 260 and only go to 265, whereas most of us <laughs> ride 260, 290, 240, 290, 300, yep. jumping around a lot, you know, but – um, you can compare your one minute range to athletes who, you know, you've looked at data and you've seen that their range they were supposed to be riding to is lower than yours, but their best one minute was way higher, 400 to 450 watts. Yeah. One example was uh, the range one rider had was uh, two, I think it was 210 to 230 mm-hmm. and they ended up riding 220, I think, which yep. that they were in within the range. So, First glimpse is, oh, they rode okay. They were in the range. Mm-hmm. But then you go to the peak power, peak 10 seconds, and I went through six or seven examples to see what was happening yeah. and compared it to myself. I'm not saying that mine's perfect, but um, but I, out of the six people, I mean, I think I was eighth fastest on the day or something, at 213, but mm-hmm. I picked out a 220, a 215, a 220, a 230, a 240, mm-hmm. and a 250 rider, and I had the lowest peak power for 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds in a minute out of all of those other riders. And that shouldn't be the way it is. I should have the highest peak power. Because you're in the fastest. And these people are riding slower and lower power than me, yet they had higher peak power for, you know, 10 seconds up to one minute. It did change two minutes, but they were still higher than me. And we're using the example of the two, 
210 to 230. So his one minute, his 10 second was 498 watts. My high 10 seconds was 330. So he was 160 watts higher than me for 10 seconds. What, what's so significant about that? If you keep doing that out of every turn, and let's face it, Geelong had, I think, 15 turns by the time you finish that event. If you keep gassing it for 10 seconds, you are burning 10 matches and it's going to affect your run. It's going to affect the rest of your ride. And, you know, every time he's going out of a corner or, or turning around, he's, he's pushing 160 watts higher than me, yet he's a 40 watt lower rider than me. So it's a ridiculous um, comparison to, to, to see the differences. So then I looked at 30 seconds and I looked at one minute and my one minute was 295, which is literally 35 watts higher than the average that I ended up at, which mm-hmm. was 260. And uh, his one minute was, I think, 390 and his range was 210 to 230, so 210. 220 was his average. Mm. So that's 170 watts difference. Mine was 35 watts difference. Mm. You're spending a full minute, 170 watts higher than your, your range. Well, you, you, no wonder you can't run evenly and have strength at the end because you keep gassing yourself. It's a 90-kilometre time trial. Not, it's not the best one minute. Who cares about that? And then I looked at five-minute, 10-minute, 20-minute, and I, then I looked at where on the course they did those. And a lot of the, the – peak power was downwind with, with the tailwind mm. and my best 30 minutes was my last 30 minutes into, from, the, headwind. into the headwind and that enabled me to have a negative split yep. a faster time higher power um, i averaged 260 um, my last 30 minutes i averaged 278 because coming home strong i i, I felt i had yep. lots of energy left to to execute yep. on the way out i averaged 250 something yep. in the first half yep. um so, you know, where it counts, the bike's going slowest, bump up the power. Yep. Outside the range is okay as long as you can manage that. I don't, I don't recommend that, but your range is there for a reason. But, you know, in my case, I was doing just the bike leg. I wasn't running. So it was okay for me to, to max out at, in the last 30K because I knew I was in control yep. of my power. But, yeah, the peak power comparison was an um, unbelievable shock to me to see – Riders significantly averaging lower power than me, but smashing me in the mm. peak power under five minutes. Mm. I was shocked when you said to me your highest uh, 10 seconds was 3.30 because it's so easy just on a little rise out of a turn just for a quick 10 seconds just to push 3.50, 3.80 watts. And so for you to have that level of control to just never go above that and just never ruin your legs allows you to sustain such a good effort for 90 kilometres. Yeah, and you just want to eliminate the spikes. And, you know, we're probably giving away all of our secrets that we give to our <laughs> one-on-one coaches. But the more spikes you have, the more times you're gassing yourself, which means you're burning matches, which means you're going to fatigue quicker. You're using glycogen too quickly. You know, you want to have a slow burn. By spiking all the time with this high power, you know, I've just proved that you don't need to do it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting watching everyone come past. I was standing at the top of the first hill and I could see that, uh, you know, knowing your time was you know, very much at the top, upper end of times, you know, one of the upper end of um, yeah, times for the day. You were very controlled coming up that hill. You saw a lot of people. It's exciting. That's the most crowd sprinting up that hill. They probably would have been pushing 500, 600 watts up that section, you know, out of the saddle really out of control and that's the kind of burst that's going to really hurt four and a half hours into the race. Yeah, look, because uh, we do that hill twice, but out of transition up that hill, I think I got passed by 
five or six people and I probably beat them by 25 minutes mm. on the day. And that's how significant it is. What are they doing? Why yep. are they doing that? And the second lap, exactly the same. Yep. People out of the seat, I saw them. Yeah. And I'm just looking at my number. I'm not going above this. Yeah. 295 and it was about a, about a 50 second climb. I'm not going into the 300s here. Yeah. So that leads us to lesson number four, which is you touched on this at the start and it's you know, a continuation of what we're talking about right now, but it's clear that, yeah, people still don't have a plan for the race you know, if you're doing... Yeah, even if it's a bad plan, it's still better than no plan. Um, and it, it, what does it do? It makes you think about what you're going to do throughout the day. So that's what we want. We just don't want people to, to randomly line up at the swim and just be sheep and just jump in and, and follow what everybody else is doing around them. You know, if you're, if you're clever enough to have form goggles and you can see, you know, the pace you're swimming at, yeah. then you can control, oh, well, I'm supposed to be doing 150 per 100 and the goggles are telling you that you're doing 120. Well, that's, that's not helpful, you know. So your plan is 150. Ease up. Your plan's working straight mm. away. Within 30 seconds, you've already saved yourself a heart rate through the max mm-hmm. and – and actually helps you for the rest of the day. Um, the same with, you know, the plan. What is my plan for the bike? What is – we talked about the range. You know, we have a range, an upper and a lower range. Based on your testing, what is your range? And if you look down at your Garmin and you see you're outside the range, well, the next question is, is that okay? Where am I on the course? Am I into a headwind or uphill? Well, that might be okay. I Am, am I in a tailwind and I'm outside the top end of the range? That's not okay. Already your plan's worked. This is my range. You've set that up as a plan and it stops you from blowing up. Um, This is the reason for the plan. You get off the bike, what's my range to run at? It might be 5.10 pace to 5.25. And you're looking down, feeling great, 4.30's on the watch for your first K. Well, the plan will stop you from doing that. You've still got to actually execute and slow down. But, you know... The majority of people who run their first K fastest for the day is up there around 90%. Yeah. And the guys who actually execute a plan with their run, where they run the same pace pretty much from start to finish, are the ones who are more successful. And the question you have to ask is, how did you finish off the race? What was your last 30, 40 minutes like or hour like? Were you, were you in control or like we said at the start, were you at the mercy of the race? And so lesson five was, um, did you have a plan or not? Because if you had a plan, you would be finishing finishing off the race in a better position. And lesson, oh, sorry, that was lesson number four. Lesson number five is: Have you done enough preparation? Have you done enough endurance preparation? Because if you have, it will help you at the back end of the race. And if you're really fading at the end, then maybe you should ask: Did I do enough endurance? And that does relate to the plan, Joe. Before we we go to that point, which is: Have you done the preparation? So, your plan is only as good as your preparation. Remember, and it's based on your preparation not your ambition. It's based on your ability of what you've actually been training at and testing at. And what your ambition is, what you want to do, that might not correlate to what your ability is. So if you go outside the plan, then, you know, if you haven't done the preparation, you will fade anyway. And you might have a good plan that says that, you know, I think I can do this. But unless it's based on sound facts, you will fade and the plan will be wrong, which is, which is not helpful either. So, so the preparation, the endurance run and the endurance ride, they're going to be found out in a half, half uh, Ironman. Um, if you haven't done that key, and we've talked about this in many of the podcasts, um, of, you know, Steve Monaghetti, what did he tell us? What was your key uh, uh, training session, Steve? 
oh, without doubt, the endurance run. You know, why? He does a marathon. Mm. Well, in this event, you're potentially between four and seven hours out there. If you're an elite, you're at the four. If you're mid-packer, you're five. If you're a beginner or a newbie, you could be at six and a half, seven. So if you haven't done the work, the endurance work, you're going to fade anyway, no matter how good your plan is, no matter how good your preparation is. You have to have done that type of endurance work. So that's what really stood out to me was um, people starting with the wrong pace based on poor preparation. Mm. It's a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah. Because a really good question you ask is, okay, how many endurance rides and endurance runs did you do? You know, did you do one to three endurance rides around the preparation, just thinking that will be enough? Did you do half a dozen? Yep. Or did you do it every weekend for the last 12 weeks leading into the race, you know, yep. 16 weeks? And look, I just I don't like using myself as an example, but I happened to be in this event and prior to the event, I had done four 90K time trials, race conditions. So I was... But practice, 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 like practice yeah. race conditions. Yeah. So, so I was prepared and knew exactly what my numbers were. And, and I'd done one of them on the course. Yeah. Um, so, and, you know, of course the wind conditions were slightly different, but, but that's a whole new coaching aspect of how to ride power in, in the wind. But the, the main point of knowing that is that um, just up before the race, I got ill and, and I was wondering about my preparation. Should I actually plan differently? Uh, because, you know, for 10 days I basically rode the bike once or twice due to – Probably five days out, you didn't even know if you were going to race. That's so. right. So, so then you have to actually adjust things and and not knowing whether it's going to affect you. Uh, so you have to make minor adjustments, even though you've done good preparation. Um, you know, these are the key things that you need to think about um, on race day. Um, Spot on. Lesson number six, uh, equipment problems. Uh, this is one that can sometimes be out of control, but you still want to be able to do everything in your power to control your equipment. Yeah, and we did talk about it bef- uh, in one of the previous podcasts, getting your equipment right before race day. And, you know, a couple of messages, oh, my handlebars started to come loose. Well, that just ruins you. <laughs> your whole mindset is, I can't sit in the right position. I'm forever holding the bar up. It's flopping I don't have the tool to fix it. Well, how did it get there in the first place? Is it just a loose screw or, you know, it can be unlucky, Mm. but but did it get checked by the bike shop? Did the bike shop make a mistake? Mm. Um, So there's a hundred things can happen. Um, You know, I know that one of our guys got a puncture. Um, Yeah, the question is, were they new tyres? But you still get punctures with new tyres. But but maybe the tyres were a little bit old. And, but we don't, you know you're still going to get a puncture. If you get a puncture, you get a puncture. Yep. Um, your gear's not not changing. You know, they're, they're examples of things things going wrong. Uh, getting a penalty box, um, you know, spending five minutes wasting your time in a – you know, these are the things that can go wrong. It's not an equipment thing, but it can really sabotage your mindset uh, like we talked about earlier. Yep. So, so you try to eliminate and get all these things right beforehand and – Sometimes you're, you're a bit, a little bit unlucky, and you know I definitely was. That was the one thing that I was worried about was when I'm in a team situation. If I was right doing it by myself, it would be less of stress to me. But because I had a swimmer and a runner relying on me, I was paranoid about getting a puncture. And you know I had really good new tyres on, mm. but still I, 
oh, could happen. It yeah. could happen, and, and that you know, we ended up winning the winning the teams event, but it, it could have been, you know, puncture could have cost us. Yeah, and that's why you've just got to do everything in your control to make sure that yep. you've done everything in your power. And if something unlucky happens, then so be it. But we also saw a lot of drink bottles coming off in the course. We did, yeah, and um, people just dropping it out of their hands or it coming out of their drink bottle holders and. And, you know, some courses are really rough. There were a couple of little speed humps outside, out of the, going out of the park. There were three in a row. Yep. And you crossed them four times. And, you know, it, and there were some really bumpy bits in mm. the park. Um, so the potential for your drink bottle to come out could derail your race because you've lost your nutrition. So that has a massive effect, um, as bad as a puncture. And one of our athletes, I thought this was really smart, lost their drink bottle early and actually stopped riding, turned around and got it because they decided that the value of their nutrition was too much to lose. They were willing to lose a minute, minute and a half on the bike because otherwise the whole race could be derailed. They could lose 15 minutes in the run because they didn't have the nutrition or half an hour in the run. That's how bad it can be. Great decision to go back. And look, some drink bottle holders are just not up to it. So you need to spend the money on getting a tight fitting one and then you've got the fine line of, I can't get the bottle out, it's so tight. (laughs) Um, So, you know... You've just got to make sure your equipment you're happy with. That's why practicing the course is important. If you've ridden those bumps before, you'd know whether you're… Exactly. Yeah, where the bottles good. stay in or stay out. Yeah. Um, nothing changes. You know, the road's still the same. And that leads us to lesson seven, which is, again, knowing the course. Yes. So I was astounded to hear people talking about or asking others, um, how, is there many hills in this course? Um, where's the turnaround again? I was just shaking my head, standing there listening, thinking, what, you haven't driven over this course. You don't know it. And that could be totally out of your control. You might have arrived, but we have to register on the Saturday. So you've got all Saturday, your flight might have come in from interstate and you can only get there for the last check-in, which is Mm 4pm. You've still got time to drive the course. Mm. It's only one lap because it's one lap times two. Yeah. There's no excuse for not knowing the course. And how could you possibly have a bike plan based around power, for high power for harder bits, low power for easier bits, when you don't know where they are? Yeah. How many turns are there? Is it going to affect your normalised power compared to your average power? Yeah. And it will, massively, because you're turning so often, the pressure's off the pedals, which means your average power is dropping, but your normalised will stay high. So I, I was just flabbergasted that people didn't know the course um, and the running course. I didn't realise there were so many hills. Well, what, you hadn't actually ridden your bike over the running course? It was literally only 5K mm. from one end to the other. Um, so that's just basic preparation. And, and it was really disappointing to hear people come to an event who do all this effort, yet a basic part of it is they're happy to forego. Yeah. Which, you know, is going to end up in a poor result. Yeah. And I laugh because you use the word disappointing like you're talking to one of your children or you're a teacher really disappointed in their student and it's because you're saying it from a place of love and care that you want people to have a better experience and I think that uh, we both definitely, we might have sounded critical this podcast uh, but all of it was designed to help people get better. Constructive criticism and post-race criticism, you learn, I've said this to many of our athletes, you will learn more from failure than you will from success. And you need to analyse post-race exactly how you performed and be brutally honest with yourself and ask some other, other people, I did this, is that good, bad or indifferent? And you know what it is. Yeah. You know, if I started off and ran five-minute K pace and finished at 6.30, you don't need to ask anybody if that's good or bad. 
you know, why did that happen? Yeah. They're the things you need to post-race do. So you don't do that same mistake again. And the yeah. things we're talking about here, you know, we're highlighting them so that even the people we don't coach are going to get an advantage from listening to this so that they don't do this in the next race. Oh, that's what I was doing wrong. I've just heard that. That's new to me. Yeah. And, and that's fair enough. You, you don't have all the answers as a triathlete. And that's why you're listening to this podcast so that you can get some more information. And, and what we're giving you is going to really help you next time around. And you won't make those mistakes again. And if you do, that's a definition of insanity. <laughs> I think it's part of both our personalities as well is that after, especially in a sporting capacity, I don't really want to get told what I did well. I want to get told what I need to improve on. And I've always been that way in any team sport I've ever played. I, I would hate it. It's obviously nice when the coach says you're doing well, but yep. I want the I want to get off and the coach tell me you need to fix this, 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 because I want to know how to get better. And so that's all this is, you know, it's every race you should be asking, okay, that was great. How do I get better? And it's hugely motivational to me. Uh, actually, I get more motivation out of performing badly. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going, that is not going to happen again. Yeah. Um, why did I fade there? Did I stuff up my nutrition? So go back to practicing nutrition in, in your training. And, you know, with, when you've got intensity, practice your nutrition. Um, you know, did I run the first bit too hard? Clearly, I thought that I could manage that, but I can't. So I have to rethink that I might, I might need to extend my endurance training. Uh, maybe I miss too many. Mm. You know, you just got to really self-reflect. And, and as brutal as it is, you know, and it's disappointing for yourself and for if someone's helping you, but, but without that, you, you actually don't learn. Yep. To finish off with, I just wanted to touch on some positives of the day, uh, just to almost balance out a little bit. Uh, I personally just love the triathlon atmosphere. It is such an electric event. Uh, there's just so much support, so much good energy. Um, obviously, the athletes, uh, they lose energy as the, as the race goes on, but I loved standing there watching the runners and the people that came past that were smiling. They'd see someone in the crowd they'd know and they'd really get up and about. Uh, our tribal athletes you know, gave us feedback and said that every time they came past, it was a real good um, spurt again uh, and I just I just love the atmosphere and I love seeing the amount of people having a crack you know really uh, you can see people have done preparation people have been training hard it means a lot to them and I just love to see uh, people challenging themselves and like you always say putting a number on um, and it's so rewarding to cross the finish line when you challenge yourself like that you're spot on with everything you just said then and and no matter how the day went, it is an unbelievably emotional time, that last 100 metres onto the carpet and you see the finish line and whether it's joyous uh, happiness or thank God I'm finishing, um, regardless of the outcome, it, it is a, a special event, putting yourself to the test and really, you know, I think people underestimate how brutally hard you know, anything from Olympic distance upwards. I mean, the Ironman is the ultimate, obviously. You know, plenty of people can, can finish them, but, you know, they quickly forget. It's almost like when I talk to my wife about childbirth, you know, the how excruciatingly hard childbirth is, but you go back and, you know, we had four children. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. so you, you, you'll forget things that are that are really bad in your in your um, thoughts. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah. You know, it, it is a day where you are being challenged, you are being pushed um, to your limits and and it's really great watching people really keeping control of themselves and, and focusing and, and still enjoying it and, you know, a lot of people happy, you know, waving and, yep. and stuff, um, yep. even though I think that you'd be better off uh, 
keeping all your energies uh, <laughs> from, from waving. But uh, but yeah, you need to have the right mindset and, and enjoy the day. That's yeah. one of the things I say. Good luck and enjoy it. Yeah. Um, and if you if you're not enjoying it, then you might think about another sport because this is one of those sports that's going to really find you out. Um, and expose all your weaknesses, and it's all in front of everybody to see. It's, uh, it's yeah, it's raw. Isn't it, it is raw. And uh, one of the people who was with it, you and I, uh, our, our swimmer in the team, and she was saying, "Oh, if you're going well through the crowd, it's great. But if you're really struggling, it's yeah. it's like going through purgatory. Yeah. It's it's like, oh, this is not good with yeah. all these people watching me yeah. performing, not at my best. Yeah. And uh, but that's you know you." That's why we congratulate everybody for putting themselves on the line and uh, and putting themselves out there to be to be ridiculed uh, or to be praised. It's uh, it's what it's about. And um, as long as you enjoy the process, then you'll line up again for the next one with some more ammunition to perform better. And last thing to finish off on the last podcast, you you did mention that you'd be better off saving your energy and and not waving too um, enthusiastically at the crowd. And I can confirm that you gave us a wave twice (laughs) on the bike. So (laughs) heed some of your own advice there. Well, I can tell you, I summarised it that over 90 kilometres, those two waves were going to be okay. Okay, Um, But if I had kept doing that and seeing you 17 different times on the course, then it would have been a problem. That's my excuse. Good way to finish off. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 